0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvements Author-in-the-Room conference call. My name is Kim, and I'll be your conference operator for today's call. Right now, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question-and-answer session, and instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time during the call, please press star zero on your touchtone phone. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Madge Kaplan, Senior Communications Strategist and former Editor and Health Correspondent for National Public Radio. Madge, you may go ahead.
1: Thank you very much. Well, hello and welcome, everyone, to Author in the Room, a project of JAMA and IHI, that is the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, all made possible by a generous grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. I am, indeed, Madge Kaplan, Senior Communications Strategist at IHI, and I'm going to serve as moderator for these monthly discussions. They are designed to bridge the gap between knowledge, what is published in an article, and action, being able to translate knowledge into steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Today, our featured author is Dr. Susan Hendricks. She's the first author of the article, Effects of Postmenopausal Hormone Therapy on Urinary Incontinence, published in the February 23rd issue of JAMA. Dr. Hendricks is professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Wayne State University School of Medicine, where she also serves as director and principal investigator of the National Institutes of Health-sponsored Women's Health Initiative. Welcome, Dr. Hendricks. Thank you, and good afternoon. Also with us today to launch Author in the Room and to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Hendricks' findings are Dr. Donald Berwick, President and CEO of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and Dr. Kathy DeAngelis, Editor-in-Chief of JAMA. Welcome Dr. Berwick and Dr. DeAngelis. Thanks, Madge.
2: Thank you. Glad Uh, to be here.
1: Terrific. The purpose of today's and future Author in the Room calls is for you to hear directly from an author about research findings that can improve patient care and clinical practice. Because we know that making the leap from what's on the page to changes in how care is delivered can be daunting. Each Author in the Room call will also be guided by a clinical improvement expert who will suggest how to first plan, then try out new ways of doing things on a small scale observe the results, refine your methods, and eventually get to a place where the change or changes have the desired impact and can be fully implemented. IHI and JAMA plan to study the degree to which author in the room participants incorporate clinical improvements suggested by our experts and the impact these changes have on clinical practice. We ask that all participants complete two short surveys immediately after the call and three months from now. And we thank you for taking the time to complete the surveys so that we may carefully monitor and measure the value of these discussions. Over 140 of you registered to be with us today, including a few members of the media, on a background basis only. One other note, as Kim said, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites. So welcome all, and let's get started. And since this is our first author in the room, call. Before we turn to Dr. Hendricks, I'd like to ask Dr. Berwick and Dr. DeAngelis to say a bit more about the goals of these conversations and how those of you who've joined us can get the most from them. Dr. DeAngelis, why don't you start?
2: Well, I'll tell you what. This is one time I'd like to hear gentlemen before ladies. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all
1: okay. right,
3: Doc, Dr. Berwick, you're on. Well, thanks a lot, and uh, I want to express my appreciation to JAMA for the opportunity to work together with them on this important project. Um, we say in the world of improvement, quality improvement, that all improvement involves change. Not all changes are improvement, but all improvement involves change. The good changes come from science. Uh, work like Dr. Hendricks and others give us a firm intellectual foundation for uh altering the status quo into a better status quo. Um, and so uh the, the the foundational uh, step toward proper change, in my opinion, begins in the kind of science that JAMA exists to publish, but that's not enough. Having a scientific paper, even a brilliantly designed one, available in the literature is not the same as helping patients. It takes a translational step to move that knowledge into action, and we have unfortunately tremendous amount of knowledge in our industry and in healthcare that the gap, the time delay, and the incompleteness with which good science reaches active practice is unacceptably large. Um, uh, Literally decades can pass between the publication of even an important paper and its widespread use in practice. The reasons, in my opinion, don't have so much to do with resistance or ignorance as they have to do with the difficulty of actually making changes, taking, taking stuff from science into the real world. Dr. DeAngelis and I have uh, been colleagues for years and we've talked about the possibility of a project like this which helps speed that migration, uh, as we said in our recent JAMA editorial on this project, from page to patient. This project will be successful if we're able to take the best science as appearing in the pages of JAMA, working with participants in calls like this and helping you move this very, very rapidly into changes in practice that help real patients uh, as soon as as we possibly can do so. We have enormous respect for the problems that practitioners have in making changes in practice and for the skepticism that they ought to have before they take action. But we're here to help, and through this call, hopefully we can make that bridge between the science and practice with you together in discussion uh, through this hour and in follow-up. Thank you. Dr. DeAngelis.
2: Well, I uh, echo what Dr. Er- Berwick said, but uh, from my perspective, I think one of the most uh, fascinating uh, things for me since I became the editor-in-chief of JAMA is just how often or, or I should say how the lack of how often anything that uh, we publish or is published in other journals but I specifically know about JAMA obviously that, that make good sense are well-documented uh, absolutely evidence-based medicine and yet <coughs> We get other papers that show that it, it just doesn't seem to be penetrating. And so when, when uh, Dr. Berwick and I were discussing the possibility of doing this, uh, it seemed like such a superb way to, to study and see if we could find out what is that gigantic barrier or what are the barriers. And uh, I think we're also very grateful to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation for funding this to see if we can find some of the reasons for this lack of translation from evidence-based medicine to actual practice.
1: Okay, thank you. Well, those are the challenges and our shared mission. Uh, let me again introduce Dr. Susan Hendricks, who will provide an overview of her newly published research on hormone therapy and urinary incontinence. Uh, Dr. Hendricks, go ahead.
4: Thank you, and I'd also like to thank JAMA and IHI for the opportunity to talk about our work in WHI. I'm sure many of you who are listening have been only uh, have been very well aware of, of the results of Women's Health Initiative, and this is just an ongoing story. And hopefully, this piqued your interest. From my standpoint, just to give you some background about myself, I'm a gynecologist who practices in Detroit. I have a large, I'm an academic practice, but I have a large private practice in menopause and neurogynecology. And I've had a longstanding interest in hormone therapy in general with women's health, but also with respect to urinary incontinence. This article, what we tried to do when we assessed the effects of estrogen with or without a progestin on urinary incontinence was to look at the participants in the randomized trials of hormones in the WHI, because as you well know, menopausal hormone therapy has been used since about 1942 to not only treat hot flashes and vasomotor symptoms and vaginal dryness, but also well beyond those indications into the realm of preventing cardiovascular disease, uh, et cetera, and one of the purported benefits of menopausal hormone therapy was to improve all of the symptoms of urinary incontinence. There were some biologic mechanisms behind that thought, mostly based on detection of estrogen receptors in genital urinary tissues, and there were some observational reports and anecdotal reports as well. There was also a recent Cochrane report which concluded that estrogen would possibly be uh, or possibly improve urinary incontinence then that the progestin, the addition of a progestin would reduce the likelihood of cure improvement but, but that estrogen alone would probably still be a very good option. And, in fact, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, my own professional society, purported use of hormone therapy for genitourinary symptoms. So I think there was a very stellar group of uh, professional societies and scientists around the country that were still recommending estrogen, Uh, with or without a progestin for the treatment of of urinary incontinence and we decided to go ahead and look at the data within WHI to try to answer the question about what was the relationship between the two. I do want to make it very clear that uh, in the design of Women's Health Initiative, although the primary endpoints were with respect to cardiovascular disease, cancer and osteoporosis, that there were other problems such as this urinary incontinence which were uh, part of the design, part of the initial design of the study uh, so that we could answer these questions. <clears throat> Excuse me. So in this report we report on both the estrogen plus progestin clinical trial and the estrogen only clinical trial. Both clinical trials were st- stopped prematurely and you can read about that in the article. The population involved 27,347 postmenopausal women, 16,608 of them were in the estrogen plus progestin trial, and the other 10,739 are in the estrogen only trial. So a substantial number of women participating in in a clinical trial. I'd like to emphasize that when we recruited women into Women's Health Initiative, they, we had very few exclusions. We, they were encouraged to participate if they were healthy, 50 to 79 years of age, and likely to reside in the area they were living for three years so that we could follow up on them. But we did not exclude them. Uh, for any other reasons than competing risks, safety, or adherence problems, retention problems. So our goal was to recruit the usual population of patients that you would see in the office so that the results of the clinical trials would apply to people that you actually see in practice. I'm sure you're very familiar with the preparations we used uh, in the estrogen plus progestin trial. PremPro with a, d- a dose of uh, conjugated equine estrogen 0.625 with medroxyprogesterone acetate 2.5 milligrams. And in the estrogen alone trial, we used Premarin, which is 0.625 milligrams of conjugated equine estrogens. Important to also understand was that the coordinating center actually ran the study at each site and the database was a study-wide database which we are all participated in. The study pills were dispensed by that central computer and there were very unique barcodes and uh, computer-based selection to enable double-blind dispensing. So the controls within the study were very strong. As far as baseline assessment and follow-up, you have tables in the paper which describe the the baseline uh, characteristics of the participants. The detailed questionnaires are in the paper, but just briefly. Uh, Women who answered the question, have you ever leaked even a small amount of urine involuntarily and you couldn't control it, were categorized as having prevalent urinary incontinence. Those that answered the question, when do you usually leak, with only when I cough, laugh, sneeze, lift, stand up, or exercise, were considered to have stress urinary incontinence and those that answered with only when I feel the need to urinate and can't get to the toilet fast enough to have urge incontinence. Those who marked both responses were considered to have mixed and those who marked only when they're sleeping were classified as having nocturnal incontinence. We did not have information from the participants on prior medical or surgical therapy for urinary incontinence, nor details on the route of childbirth, vaginal or cesarean, or childbirth-related complications. We did have follow-up information on a subsample of these participants at three years, uh, 8.6%, and those numbers are, again, in the paper. The statistical analysis was quite complex, but suffice it to say we used the intent to treat principle where everyone was analyzed according to where they were randomized at the beginning of the study and anyone who we had information on uh, were analyzed uh, for the final results. Getting to the results, and I'll try to be brief here, the study flow is in the figure that's in the paper and tables one and two describe the baseline characteristics. There were 16,417 women in the E plus P trial that were available uh, for analysis and that represented about 64.1% reporting urinary incontinence symptoms within the past year at baseline. This was uh, stress incontinence was reported by about 41% of incontin- incontinent women in the estrogen plus progestin trial, and 36.7 of those in the estrogen alone trial. Urge incontinence, 34.8% in the E plus P trial, and 36.4 in the estrogen alone trial mixed incontinence was reported by twenty three point eight percent in the estrogen plus progestin trial and twenty six point two percent in the estrogen alone trial importantly these numbers seem somewhat high because of the definitions that we used leaking of any urine urine in the last year however this is more contemporary to what the current um, definitions are by uh, international organizations such as the International Continence Society. As far as new onset or incidence urinary incontinence, menopausal hormone therapy was associated with an increase in incidence at one year of any urinary incontinence and the, and the relative risk for the E plus P trial was 1.39 showing an almost 40% increase in risk In the estrogen alone trial, the relative risk was 1.53. For stress incontinence, the increase was approximately 87% with a relative risk of 1.87 in the E plus P trial. In the estrogen alone trial, the relative risk was over 2. And for mixed urinary incontinence in the E plus P trial, it was 1.49 or a 49% increase and 1.58 in the estrogen-only trial. If you look at tables 6, 7, 8, you will see the women who are symptomatic at baseline stratified uh, by baseline characteristics and the effect on amount. So for table 6, for instance, you see that in the combined CE plus MPA or the E plus P trial, the relative risk overall was to increase was an increase of twenty percent. Whereas in the CE alone versus placebo trial, the relative risk was one point five nine or a fifty-nine percent increase in risk. It's difficult on a conference call to guide you through these tables. I'm not sure that you all have the paper in front of you, but hopefully you can um, listen to what I'm saying and follow what what I'm trying to go through. Older women and women who had been postmenopausal for a longer duration tended to be at high risk for uh, uh, menopausal hormone therapy effects on incident stress incontinence. And similar age trends can also be seen for urge and mixed urinary incontinence. We did try to account for different definitions of urinary incontinence, and to do that we performed a sensitivity analysis and found that the risk of incident urinary incontinence due to menopausal hormone therapy was robust to multiple definitions of urinary incontinence. Uh, For example, increasing the frequency threshold used to define urinary incontinence um, did not change the results. If we change the definition from within the last year to more than once a week, the relative risk for stress urinary incontinence changed only from 1.87 to 2.28. So whatever definition of urinary incontinence you think is clinically meaningful, uh, these results still apply. For the women who reported urinary incontinence at baseline, menopausal hormone therapy also increased the likelihood of worsening of the amount of urinary incontinence. And for instance, I mentioned table six, the relative risk for the combined trial was 1.20 and the estrogen only 1.59. Worsen frequency and limitations in daily activities. Menopausal hormone therapy also increased the likelihood of worsening degree of bother or disturbance attributed to urinary incontinence. Moving then to a discussion of the issue, I think these results for me as an individual practitioner were very surprising. I expected that hormone therapy, whether it included uh, progestin or not, was going to improve urinary incontinence, at least urge incontinence, but most likely have an impact on all types of incontinence. And this was really consistent with all the previous literature up until the publication of the HERS trial that had had preceded uh, this current research. There had been 28 trials of various hormone preparations that had shown subjective cure and improvement uh, rates were higher in women receiving estrogen for both urge and stress urinary incontinence. And although HERS found um, an increase in the risk for urinary incontinence, it was not brought into the mainstream of clinical practice. I think one of the biggest questions we had was why menopausal hormone therapy would what would be the biologic mechanism by which it would worsen this condition. And needless to say, the basic science in this area is very limited, but there has been a recent randomized trial of women receiving two milligrams of oral estradiol over six months, which shows significant decreases in total periurethral collagen and profound effects on collagen metabolism were observed and included simulation of collagen degradation uh, via matrix metalloproteinase II activity. So for all of these structures that we're talking about that are affected by uh, or impacted by the urethra, the bladder, connective tissue and collagen is a crucial uh, element. And so consequently, any damage to these tissues could cause uh, ineffective urethral closure pressure and sets the stage for urinary incontinence. I will say that we only studied two types of preparation, uh, the conjugated equine estrogen with or without medroxyprogesterone acetate. Therefore, we can't really generalize these findings to women taking other hormone preparations. I think that we as clinicians need to demand if makers of those medications want to persist in saying they're somehow different or wouldn't have this effect, that they provide clinical trials to prove that theory. I think there were some interesting indicators in the subgroups, uh, like the women who were 50 to 54 years of age. However. If you look at the numbers, the numbers are very small and the estimates are quite unstable and so we did not report on these.
1: Dr. Hendricks, uh, this is Madge Kaplan. Mm-hmm. Um, can you uh, uh, perhaps uh, kind of wrap up this initial part with some of your sort of baseline recommendations, kind of take-home recommendations based on, on your findings?
4: Yes, I I think the the take-home message is that Menopausal hormone therapy does not protect against any type of urinary incontinence. And, in fact, it increases risk for new onset incontinence and worsens symptoms in women who are already incontinent. And, therefore, I think that menopausal women should not be prescribed this medication to treat urinary incontinence.
1: Okay. Thank you very, very much. You've just been listening to Dr. Susan Hendricks, and she is the first author of the article Effects of Postmenopausal Hormone Therapy on Urinary Incontinence, published in the February 23rd issue of JAMA. Uh, we want to turn now to what the research and Dr. Hendricks's recommendations suggest about changes in clinical practice that clinicians might consider. Uh, Dr. Berwick, most of our callers are now familiar with a mounting body of research, uh, a lot of what uh, Dr. Hendricks referred to on hormone therapy. What sort of improvement in care might follow from these latest findings?
3: Well, um, we'll soon open the lines to callers asking questions, and I'm sure some of the questions to Dr. Hendricks will have to do with the science again, because the basis for taking action to improve practice should remain a conviction about the, uh, the what, it, what the evidence base really says. So I'm going to proceed from the platform of assumption that Dr. Hendrick's findings scientifically are accepted. Any callers that want to question that are welcome to do so in a a couple of minutes. But if we start with that as a platform and we think about improvement of practice and speeding the uh, changes from page to patient, uh, implementing practices, the question is what changes are are called for. In a typical model for improvement that we would use to, to work on improvement of care, we always ask three fundamental questions. What is the aim? Uh, how will we know if we're making progress toward that aim? And what changes from the prevailing system uh, should be made or c- could be made that might be improvements from the viewpoint of, of the aim? Uh, the aim here, I imagine, it has something to do with the safe and appropriate use of uh, hormone therapy and uh, especially avoiding the, the um, complications uh, uh or uh, of uh, urinary incontinence uh, the complication of urinary incontinence uh what I would like to ask Dr. Hendricks uh taking the lead first is is uh, about the issue of change Dr. Hendricks compared to what you believe is prevailing practice perhaps among many of the people listening and on this phone call what would you say would be uh two or three specific changes in practice that you would now advocate based on your study changes in the actual process of care
4: well first i would ask patients who are currently continuing on hormone therapy if they're having trouble with urinary leakage. Many women are very embarrassed and afraid to report this on their own, so asking them in a you know, kinder and gentler way so that they feel comfortable answering. And then if in fact they do answer that they're having problems with it, trying them off, tapering them down or taking them off somehow hormone therapy to see if their incontinence improves. As well, if I were going to start somebody on hormone therapy for symptoms, I would make the same query with the caveat that the patient understands that if she starts from hormone therapy, it may worsen her preexistent incontinence.
3: So one change is for patients who upon request, uh, upon questioning, report incontinence, you're suggesting is wean them off the therapy, and for those about to start on therapy, uh, make them perhaps more aware of the possible risk of incontinence. What would you do with patients who are on replacement therapy at the moment, and who in response to the question about incontinence say they, they're not experiencing incontinence?
4: I would just uh, suggest to them that it is a side effect that may develop and to report it if it does develop. By far and away, the majority of women won't develop this problem. However, it's important for them to realize that it's a potential uh, risk and they should report it if they come across it.
3: But let's take one step further. Let's say that uh, a physician or nurse uh, counseling a patient who who reports that they have urinary incontinence uh, and is on therapy uh, begins to offer to uh, suggest a weaning-off therapy. What might patients say in response to that, just thinking ahead a bit? How, what are some of the questions the, the clinician might get asked?
4: Well, they're going to ask, what's going to happen if I stop? Am I going to feel worse? Am I going to have problems like bleeding? what will be some of the things I can expect if I try to come off the therapy.
3: Would you be willing to construct a very short script about how you might respond to concerns like that?
4: Certainly. I I would say it depends upon how long you've been on hormone therapy. If you've been on it a very short time, you may experience some symptoms coming off, such as hot flashes, night sweats, even vaginal bleeding. But we will try to control those by either going slower with the tapering off the hormone therapy or addressing, you know, the concerns in other fashions with with behavioral changes, with other medications that we could potentially use to help their symptoms. As well, um, if they're worried about their overall sense of well-being, you know, I try to reassure them that although we thought for many years that hormone therapy Made women feel better, overall quality of life. That in fact those uh, were not those findings were not uh, found with the Women's Health Initiative, and, and that although I hate to say that there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of passion about what estrogen can and can't do, but they should realize that they will probably feel just fine coming off of it, and that we should we should wait and see what happens rather than expecting that they'll feel worse.
3: Thanks. Well, let's take one one more step into scenario planning. Let's so one change is for a woman currently on therapy, inquire about incontinence, and if incontinence is is uh, is alleged. Uh, then help begin the weaning process, just as you said. Let's go to the patient we're about to consider starting on a hormone replacement therapy. Now, your counsel is the change in practice there is to make them aware of the risk, and you've certainly offered the relative risk very clearly in your paper. Uh, again, what might a patient say in such a conversation, and how would you respond to it to, uh, as we consider whether or not to start the hormone replacement therapy?
4: Now, remember, we have to couch that with all the other the other potential uh, risks and benefits of hormone therapy. I, in my personal practice, I do not prescribe hormone therapy for any other reason than control of menopausal symptoms, i.e., hot flashes and night sweats. Uh, so I would, in addition to talking about urinary incontinence, talk about the risks for cardiovascular disease, stroke, et cetera, dementia, um, and say that if what I say to my patients is, it depends on how severe your symptoms are. If you think your symptoms a warrant treatment and that you're willing to accept these risks, then that's fine. I have no problem. We can use hormone therapy. But it, it's very hard for a woman to really predict their own risk. It's really, people say all the time, I, I can remember when I was uh, younger, people said, oh, you're a big woman, you won't ever need a C-section. Well, I, you know, obviously had a C-section. We can never predict our own risk, so I, I just make women Aware of the risks and try to make them uh, go through a thoughtful exercise about whether they really think they need it.
3: Thanks a lot, Dr. Hendricks. Uh, Perhaps we can go to questions. I would uh, I'd suggest as people frame their questions, there'll be questions of two types. One will be about the science. Do you believe Dr. Hendricks' findings? Where would you like to probe for questions of validity and reliability and generalizability? And then second, the implementation questions. Would you consider taking some action as a participant in the call? And would you like Dr. Hendricks' coaching on how to take that action?
1: Yes, okay, thank you both, and I think you've both put out a, a good foundation uh, for our discussion. Uh, a quick reminder that IHI and JAMA plan to study the impact of authoring the room on call participants clinical practice using two short surveys. Please don't forget to complete the surveys, and we greatly appreciate your taking part in this important research about the value of just this type of discussion that we're having today. We're now going to open up the phone lines for your questions. Uh, as Don uh, has said you may have questions of two types, about the science itself and about the, the types of changes in clinical practice that were just being suggested. Please, uh, if you could, state your name and where you're from. We'd appreciate it, your being as concise as possible. And uh, if your question is directed to a particular person, uh, let us know that as well. So let's start with the questions, Kim.
0: Thank you. At this time, we will conduct a question and answer session. If you have a question, press 0, then the 1 key on your touchtone phone. This will place you into a queue. One by one, the lines will be open, so you may each ask your questions. So again, that zero one on your touchtone phone. Our first question comes from Randy Goodwin with Middlesex Hospital. Randy, you may go ahead.
5: Uh thanks. Can you hear me?
0: Yes, uh,
1: are you on a speakerphone? Yeah. Okay. Is it possible for you to put the get on a headset just to hear you a little better? Uh, no, I'm sorry. That's okay. Go ahead. That's okay. Um, go, ahead. go
5: ahead. Okay. Uh first a uh a comment. Um I I know uh you know getting uh this information into practice is important, uh, granted, but I would pose this uh, to Dr. Berwick. Uh, Generally physicians in their decision-making process every day, they're generally uh, conservative, and so they oftentimes don't like to make considerable meaningful changes in their practice patterns based on one particular study. They they like to wait uh, for confirmation, uh, more time going by um, uh, discussing these issues with their colleagues uh, before going ahead and making uh, significant changes in their practice. And this certainly, it sounds like, due to the Surprising uh, nature of these results, this may be uh, diametrically opposed to what a lot of physicians have been doing in the past as far as estrogen therapy for urinary incontinence. So, I wondered if you could comment on that in terms of the entire basis for these kind of um, uh, uh, conferences that we're going to be having over the next 12 months. And secondly, uh for the doctor, um if you could just give us an idea since estrogen seemed to be uh out uh in terms of hormonal therapy for urinary incontinence, what do you uh particularly think is valuable in terms of treating uh urinary incontinence in these uh women?
1: All right. Let's start with Dr. Berwick, please, Uh, first. Sorry, I got a little feedback, but uh, Dr. Berwick, why don't we start with you about whether doctors uh, can uh, shift gears here easily, and then let's take up uh, possible alternatives.
3: Thanks for the question, Randy. Of course, we do see slow penetration of great uh, new research into practice, and one of the reasons is doctors are conservative. They're waiting for evidence. Uh, I would put the question here and ask perhaps uh, Dr. Hendricks to comment on the 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 relative evidence base of the status quo practice compared to what Dr. Hendricks has found, we have here an enormous study uh, with a superb design, with relative risks in the range of 1.2 to 2.0, significance levels uh, below uh, 0.001. This is an extremely strong uh, set of findings, and uh, it. To me, when when we commit to being evidence-based, I'd say, well, well, I'm a Bayesian. When we have uh, new evidence of uh, such enormous quality as this compared to a status quo, which is largely based on non-randomized and not as systematic research, isn't our duty as physicians to accept the evidence and act on it promptly, establishing a new status quo. So those who wait may hope or believe that a better study will come along to reverse these findings, but they've got to look at the evidence base for what they're doing now. Dr. Hendricks, do you think the evidence base for current practice is uh, is strong compared to your study? How do you view the current the status quo evidence?
4: Well, Randy, the first thing I thought about when I was ta- when you were talking was that the, the evidence for use of estrogens uh, with respect to urinary incontinence was very, very weak. I mean, we're talking about very small studies of usually under 100 women, sometimes only 20 or 30 women in a study, not randomized, uh, not well controlled, oftentimes. Uh, many observational and uh, studies and many animal models to suggest benefit. So although I understand what you're saying and I feel the same way about being conservative, I do approach it somewhat differently when we're talking about a harm versus a benefit. When a new drug comes to market, I'm often more cautious to prescribe it for the very reasons that you state, but when a study um, such as this is published with very strong data, very strong um, results, it moves me to push my clinical practice much quicker because we're talking about harming a patient, and our of course our duty is is to do no harm. So if it were a benefit, I can understand where you're coming from, but the, the harm involved uh, until we have evidence otherwise is to be more cautious in my mind. How do I treat incontinence? Well, uh, usually I treat incontinence Three basic ways. We do pelvic floor muscle rehabilitation with physical therapy and we have a very um, good physical therapist where we are and I can hopefully get you in touch with one if you're not familiar in your community uh, that can help both with urge incontinence and stress incontinence. There are multiple drugs available which I'm sure you're aware of um, both the anticholinergic class, anti-muscarinic class of drugs uh, to treat overactive bladder or urge incontinence. And then stress incontinence, unfortunately, other than physical therapy and uh, biofeedback, behavioral therapies, uh, we don't have very good treatments for. In fact, we have no treatments other than surgery. Duloxetine was a drug that was promised, but the FDA has decided not to approve that.
1: Okay. all right, thank you very much. Uh, We'll go to the next question now.
0: Thank you. Our next question will come from Robert Lubo with Harrington Hospital. Robert, you may go ahead.
6: Uh, First of all, I want to thank the uh, speakers uh, for a wonderful concept that is getting uh, changes in research into clinical practice. I think it's most important. Uh, Interestingly, this particular concept uh, it, to me at least personally falls flat because of the fact that most uh, that I and most of us are not using estrogen in our postmenopausal women with the exception as Dr. Hendricks outlined but let me my question is to what degree do you think this is generalizable to other forms of estrogen you did touch on this and specifically esterified estrogens
4: and your thought is
6: well it's at least scientifically uh, reasonable uh, but uh, it's not emotionally reasonable, scientifically reasonable that uh, ester- other forms of estrogen would not give the same result and might uh, help with the uh, urinary incontinence as opposed to uh, inhibit, uh, that is, uh, create more urinary incontinence.
4: But the, the I guess I, what I was probing for was what you thought, why you thought that might be different. We really have no evidence in the literature that, um, although we'd like to believe that every drug, that's not prim or primpro pro um, is somehow different or better. We really don't have any evidence to show that in any of the research that we have. Um, the estrogen receptor is a pretty fundamentally simple uh, receptor. It has many adapter proteins that are very complex, but the effect at the receptor level is very uniform in all the other studies. I think the real question is, and, and this may be where you were going with your question, is uh, are topical estrogens somehow different or will they have a different effect? And again, I think this deserves study. I don't think we can assume because we're administering it topically that it's not going to have the same effect. I'd like to think that it was available for treatment, but I I would not prescribe it for that reason unless I had evidence.
1: Okay, thank you very much.
0: All
4: right,
1: next question.
0: Our next question will come from Janet Kirkpatrick with HealthNet. Janet, you may go ahead. Thank you. Is there any evidence that the effect
7: on the collagen is reversible? In other words, if you take the woman off the hormone replacement
4: therapy, will her urinary incontinence improve? Well, that is that is the uh, million-dollar question. You're absolutely right. Um, we don't know if this is a reversible condition or whether it's a permanent one. And we hope to be able to continue following these women, to see if we can answer that question. But in the absence of evidence, I guess uh, trying to stop it to see if it improves would be the prudent thing to do. Would you agree? I would agree. Unfortunately,
7: I'm not a practicing doc at the moment, but I find this fascinating and this whole program very fascinating as as to how to get this information out to physicians who might do that. And that's a possibility for me, since I'm part of a health plan. That's something we could do.
1: All right. Uh, well, we'll count on you to help <laughs> spread the word. But thank, thank you very much. Uh, next question.
0: Our next question comes from Katie Hendry with Rosedale Medical Association. Katie, you might go ahead.
7: Uh, yeah. Thanks, Curtis. Sort of extrapolating on the whole question of what other estrogens might might do, and and so on. I, I understand you probably don't have an answer to this, but um, it made me think of all the people who were getting oral contraceptives, and if there's some effect of the estrogen um, on the collagen, do mm-hmm. we have any clue as to whether or not we're going to be creating more problems down the line?
4: Or is anyone mm-hmm. even thinking about the, that? You've, you've got another wonderful question. I'm, I mean, uh, interestingly, I, if I had to make a guess in that direction, I guess what I would say is that, The effects that we seem to see with postmenopausal estrogen administration have to do with administration and aging, and the and aging is really an an important concept. I I think it would be a very important question to answer if women are becoming incontinent. You know that women in premenopausal or reproductive years have a very low frequency of incontinence, however it is underreported and uh, has recently been reported as increasing. So this may be a real concern and I'd like to tell you I had an answer but I don't and I
0: think that would be an important study. Thank
1: you. Next question.
0: Our next question comes from M. E. Juca with Medical College of Wisconsin. Please go ahead.
7: Hi. I'm very happy to participate in this discussion. And I've been following the Women's Health Initiative, as I'm sure everyone here who's uh, participating has been since it first hit the papers. Uh, My big concern about evidence-based medicine in the Women's Health Initiative is is that I think that the evidence uh, that we can talk about really applies to women who are really post -post postmenopausal and not in the perimenopausal and immediate menopausal time period. So I think that we have the nail in the coffin with respect to estrogen in women who are in their 60s and 70s, and there's little evidence, except in extreme cases, that estrogen would be of any benefit. But in looking through these um, tables, you know, the numbers that you have in the early, at least what we presume the early postmenopause of the 50-54, the numbers are small and the numbers are definitely not statistically significant. And in the women who were urinary incontinence at baseline, actually there's a suggestion that there might have even been slight benefit, although, again, it's not statistically significant. So I really I think that we need so much more study in women who are entering menopause and what are the treatments that can do to help them at that time. I do have... Um, one patient who was started on estrogen prior to the Women's Health Initiative and uh, did not complain of in urinary incontinence at the time she was started on it and then afterwards noticed that she stopped having stress incontinence Yeah, and then that's... went off estrogen because of the Women's Health Initiative and requested to go back on it because it improved her stress incontinence. Of course, that's only an N of 1. Uh, one other comment in terms about the um, collagen, I find that uh, extremely interesting. The study that they did that on was, they did what, 50? I think there were 57 patients or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 50 patients. And um, what I find interesting is, is that there is at least one fairly large study, which was an observational study that was done years ago by dermatologists who, have dem- who suggested that women who took hormones had better collagen because they had less wrinkles. And then there is the evidence based on estrogen replacement being um, helpful for patients with osteoarthritis, which is a whole issue that didn't get explored by the Women's Health Initiative. But what I would like to, in terms of we're going to talk about evidence-based medicine, I I always like to couch it in terms of let's talk about what the evidence is and the evidence is based on women who are well past
4: menopause. Well, you you have some very important points, but let me um, uh, just weigh in on the issue of age. It is true that the mean age in WHI was uh, over 63. The reality was there were 5,521 participants in the E plus P trial, and I don't have the number off the top of my head in the estrogen only trial, um, who were between the ages of 50 and 59. I don't consider that a small number of women. In fact, it was well over uh, 3,000 women who were between the ages of 50 and 54. The largest trial prior... So between 50 and 54? Uh, uh, combining in, the E plus P and the e alone trials. Uh, there were there were over well over 3,000 participants, and I don't have, again, the number off the top of my head. It's
7: about 1,200 in the... CEE. Right, and there are about there are over 200. But my question has always been: Is how postmenopausal were those women? Well, in terms of were they were were these women who were 50? Had they gone into menopause at 40? So
4: they would actually be 10 years postmenopausal. No, and and uh, let me finish uh, real sure. quick what I was going to say, just so we don't we give other people an opportunity. Sure. Um, the It is true that we tried to answer the question for all women, not just women making the transition, because we were all starting women on hormone therapy for cardiovascular prevention, or at least many of us were. So the fact that we had so many younger women seems to be ignored by many people looking at WHI. And if you look at, for instance, the stroke results uh, that were published in the estrogen plus progestin a paper the highest hazard ratio now the absolute risk is lowest because the youngest women are at lower risk for stroke but the highest hazard ratio was in the youngest women so although i understand what you're saying that we we do and i totally agree with you we do need more information on women making the transition i don't think we can dismiss the effects um on women who are making the transition because the the data don't speak to that I mentioned before if you look at the age subgroup uh analyses they you cannot the power just isn't there to make a a substantive uh conclusion. Right. And, and so we can't dismiss it because we don't have the power to look at that age group. We have to accept the fact that the probability is it's the same effect in all populations and we, what we need to do is have further research to clarify the, the actual effect in younger postmenopausal women.
1: Okay. Let, thank you very much. Let's try and squeeze in one more quick question and then we're going to have to uh, wind up.
0: Thank you. Our next question will come from Tom Matlock with Wickenberg Healthcare Alliance. Please go ahead.
5: Hi, I have a couple of questions for uh, uh, Dr. Hendricks, and uh, one of them is very practical, and that's what I, I can't recall, of course, never having read anything about Premarin uh, since we've all lived with it for 50 years. Did the FDA ever approve Premarin for this use, to your knowledge?
4: Uh, and it did what not. about the
5: uh, the concept of, uh, of liability for prescribing this drug now and in somebody who particularly wants it? Given the uh, the negative press and the negative knowledge that we have about uh, estrogens in general, is it has it been a widespread problem? Are there 50 percent of gynecologists and urologists using this therapy, or is the number larger or smaller?
4: Well, that's a great question. I don't know. We don't have a sense of how many people use uh, hormones to treat urinary incontinence. We know that there's a strong feeling that it in the gynecologic and urologic community, I just gave grand rounds to urology here at Wayne, and and they were very dumbfounded. Uh, They thought this was their one foray into gynecology, and now it's been taken away from them. But um, the reality is that Anything you do in medicine when you prescribe a a, a drug has liability, but that shouldn't direct, or I don't feel it should direct, the way you make your decisions. I I do think that all of the results from WHI could potentially have a negative impact with respect to, to lawsuits and getting sued for using the drug. But I don't think it will if you give a patient informed consent and allow her to make the choice. And as long as you document that you gave informed consent, as long as you're really giving informed consent and making sure you're including the things like that seem to get forgotten like dementia. Um, in in older women, then it's fine to use hormone therapy. Hormones are very important for women who have moderate to severe vasomotor symptoms because we just don't have anything else. And it would be a crime, I think, to take it away from those women who used to be put in mental institutions 100 years ago when they went through menopause. Uh, uh, it It would be a crime to take it away from them. On the other hand, I think they need to say to themselves, do I really need this and am I willing to accept the risk? And so as long as you document it, I think you're fine.
1: Thank you, Dr. Hendricks, and thanks to all our questioners. Believe it or not, the hour has really flown by, and that's all the time we do have for questions. There will be a web-based discussion group available on IHI's website for participants who'd like to continue uh, this conversation with one another, and you will find a link to this discussion group right on the homepage of IHI.org. In order to view or participate in the discussion, you do have to register with IHI.org, but it's free and simple to do so. so, we're coming to the end of this first in a series of hour long discussions. We are calling Author in the Room. Thanks to all of you who've called in, and thanks very much to Dr. Susan Hendricks, Dr. Donald Berwick, and Dr. Kathy DeAngelis for your knowledge and guidance today. And I'd like to give each of you an opportunity to express a brief uh, closing remark. Go ahead, uh, Dr. Berwick.
3: Uh, thank you, Madge, for your hosting, Dr. Hendricks, for your great research and a great, uh, great commentary. I would just urge people on the call. now to take evidence-based care seriously Uh, with some of the skepticism you may want to wish wish to bear, but patients get better when you make changes. So the test of the effectiveness of this work now is will you be willing to take this information, understand it the best you can, and then map it directly into practice starting right away.
7: Dr. DeAngelo?
2: Well, as uh, editor-in-chief and as a woman, I'm anxious to see uh, what effect, if any, uh, this particular uh, intervention, shall we say, has on Changing practice. We'll see.
1: Okay. And Dr. Hendricks, last word for you. Well,
4: I hope in WHI we can come up uh, with uh, more good information for you. And I apologize, it's negative, but it's just the data. And we have to live with the data and practice by the data. So I hope I join with uh, Dr. Spurwick and DeAngelis to see what will happen.
1: All right, well, thank you for a wonderful presentation and discussion, all of you today. This is a monthly series that takes place the third Wednesday of every month from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Our next discussion takes place on April 20th. The author and title of our featured article will be announced on the JAMA and IHI websites after 4 p.m. Eastern Time on April 5th. Author in the Room is an interactive conference call, as you've just witnessed, designed to accelerate changes that can improve clinical practice. The project is a collaboration between the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, generously funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. A reminder IHI and JAMA are studying how and whether author in the room participants can make use of clinical improvements suggested by our experts. Today's discussion of new findings on hormone therapy and urinary incontinence suggests some changes in practice clinicians might test on a small scale, and we are asking all participants to complete two short surveys immediately after this call and three months from now. And again, thank you uh, for joining today and for taking the time to complete these surveys. Thanks to our guests and to all of you for being part of Author in the Room. I'm Madge Kaplan of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Good afternoon, everyone.